Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Researchers say more than one in four patients with COVID still have symptoms months later. They include fatigue and shortness of breath to brain fog and headaches. Are you experiencing long-haul symptoms? Coming up where we live, we talk about long-haul COVID and learn about a recent study by researchers at Yale New Haven Hospital's Winchester Center for Lung Disease that may give hope to long-haulers who've been worried about damage to their heart and lungs. We also hear about the importance of physical therapy in recovery. If you're experiencing long-haul symptoms, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. That conversation later. First, it's the fifth day since war broke out in Ukraine after Russia invaded. The Ukrainian government says at least 350 civilians have been killed. Today, Ukraine and Russia are meeting in Belarus. But Ukrainian President Zelensky has said he's doubtful the talks will result in a ceasefire. And over the weekend, Vladimir Putin placed Russia's nuclear forces on high alert in response to what he calls the West's aggressive actions. Meanwhile, the New York Times reports Russia's economy has taken a hit with the ruble crashing and the stark stock market closing, the result of the West's sanctions. Joining us now with the latest on Ukraine, on Zoom with us, 4th District Congressman Jim Himes. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. He's chair of the House Subcommittee on National Security, International Development, and Monetary Policy. Congressman Himes, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you spoke with the Treasury Department about the expulsion of several Russian banks from SWIFT. This is a system that facilitates international financial transactions. Can you tell us about that decision? Yeah, sure. This is all part of an effort, a much broader effort. It's not just SWIFT. It's also um, shutting off the Russian central bank's ability to do hard currency transactions. It's about making sure Nord Stream 2 never gets operative. And, it, and it's all designed to stop Putin's hope that he might have moved quickly into Ukraine, the world wouldn't notice, and in particular his people, who I don't think he cares that much about, but his oligarch friends, who I think he does care a lot about, don't feel any pain. Um, the fact that Russia is now economically, internationally isolated, and remember, Russia is a country that imports just about everything it uses other than oil and gas is going to inflict a great deal of pain on the Russian economy and on the participants in that economy. Let's talk about the other sanctions at play. Uh, New York Times also reporting the Treasury Department today moved to further cut off Russia from the global economy, announcing it would immobilize Russian central bank assets that are held in the U.S. and then impose sanctions on the Russian Direct Investment Fund. This is a sovereign wealth fund that's run by a close ally of uh, Putin's. The EU's freeze on Russia's central bank, along with a separate, separate sanction from the Federal Reserve. How catastrophic will this be for Russia? 
This is a huge problem for Russia, because remember, as I said before, Russia buys just about everything it consumes. That's automobiles and electronics and a lot of food and the parts that go into the things that they actually manufacture. And to buy all of that stuff, almost all of that stuff, they need hard currency. They need dollars or they need euros. Um, the central bank sanctions are going to take away one of the most important defensive weapons that Putin has, which is his dollar and euro reserves. A lot of those dollars and a lot of those euros are actually abroad and he can no longer get access to them. Um, and so in some ways, that's really the big sanction. SWIFT is more, you know, a lot of people don't know what SWIFT is. SWIFT is basically a messaging system between banks. And the fact that they, a lot of the Russian banks aren't going to have access to that is going to make it very hard, but not impossible for them to do business. But if the Russian economy doesn't have access to dollars and to euros, um, that economy grinds to a halt. And, and, and before it grinds to a halt, Russians, of course, lose confidence in their currency and in their banking system, which we're already seeing today as, as Russians everywhere line up at banks and you know, do all they can to try to get what may end up being scarce hard currency. Meanwhile, Putin ordered nuclear deterrent forces to begin high alert over the weekend. So how do you view that? How should the international community view this? Well, it's two things. Number one, it's evidence of the fact that this is not going at all the way Putin would have hoped. He, I think, was looking for a reprise of uh, Crimea, where the world takes notice and gets angry. But three weeks later, we're on to the next thing. Um, Putin, if you think about it strategically, has now basically accomplished the reverse of all his objectives. NATO is now unified. The Germans are making a major uh, investment in their own self-defense. Countries are asking to join NATO. The Ukrainians are unified. I mean, this is just a catastrophe. And so I think nuclear saber rattling is reflective of his realization that this is a very different uh, war than he thought he was buying. But of course, you know, anytime you have a sentence with the word nuclear in it, you take it very seriously. And I think, you know, the president of the United States is doing the right thing by not putting our forces on nuclear alert um, and, and, and just sort of, you know, having the world tell Putin that once again, he's the one doing the destabilizing things here. You mentioned nuclear saber rattling. Uh, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, told CNN over the weekend that he personally thinks that Putin is unhinged. I worry about his acuity, his balance. So again, we think about Putin's strategy to cause unease. You know, when he says these things and the actions that he puts forth, is it more ominous? Well, yeah, it's it's always hard to know that. Um, it is jarring to see a guy who, as disgusting and as sort of monstrous as he is, could usually be counted upon to be a pretty good poker player, so misjudge what he's done in the last week or so. Uh, again, every single one of his strategic objectives now lying in smoldering ruins, you know, and sure, he may take Kiev briefly, but his strategic objectives are just lying in an ash heap. And so what you worry about, you know, rational or not, you always worry about an autocratic leader who gets increasingly isolated and increasingly desperate. Um, you know, desperate people do desperate things. And if at some point he feels like his grip on power is um, is slipping, that's a very dangerous moment for the world. Uh, I know that White House press secretary had mentioned this over the weekend, responded to the high alert by calling it manufactured threats. Uh, should she be using that that description again when we're talking about Vladimir Putin? 
Well, again, it's a little hard to know what's in his mind right now. Um, but uh, there is an, an active debate about whether this is bluster. It certainly feels that way. I mean, it would be the act of an absolute raving madman to launch a nuclear weapon when really what he's doing is failing in a fairly small war on his periphery. Um, but again, anytime the word nuclear is in a sentence, you sit up and take it pretty seriously. Mm. Uh, lives are, are being lost uh, as we speak, and uh, the president has said that uh, Ukraine will be dealing with this for some time. Um, there's only so much that the U.S. can do, uh, and the West, including uh, these sanctions. Uh, but can we talk more about, uh, you know, this long-term strategy? And when we think about uh, Russia's ability to cause chaos, uh, not just uh, with um, the the invasion in Ukraine, but, um, you know, concerns about uh, cyber attacks and how that will um, impact the West. Can you talk about that, Congressman Himes? Sure. I mean, these last couple of days, if you're on the Ukrainian side, with which most of us are, um, with possibly the exception of our former president, um, you, you, you take some satisfaction from the remarkable unity and the remarkable gumption of the Ukrainians. Um, but let's be real here. Um, this, this, at least in the very near term, is going to get worse for the Ukrainians. The Russians will up their brutality. We're already seeing that today with artillery going into residential areas of cities. And at the end of the day, the math around the, Ru the Russian military is just hard to escape. So this is going to, in the next week or two, I think, going to get really uh, pretty ugly and pretty sad. And by the way, for the rest of the world, too, you know, there will be disruptions in energy markets. Already high gasoline prices and natural gas prices are likely to get higher. But what we need to do is we need to remember that what is happening now is that a democracy is standing up against a brutal, monstrous autocrat, and they're going to win in the long run. Let's imagine that tomorrow we wake up and, and Putin has control of Kiev uh, and three or four other cities. He can't keep that control easily. Uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians have shown that they've got gumption. They will take out dozens of Russian troops every single day in brutal urban fighting. He will only be more isolated by the international community. So again, in the next two weeks, we may see some really sad and disconcerting things. But the longer Putin stays in Ukraine, the bigger a problem it is for him and for his economy. You mentioned gas and oil, obviously instability abroad, leading to rising gas prices. Even residents in Connecticut are noticing this. Uh, today, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal is going to call again for a suspension of the federal gas tax. But some critics see this as a midterm election gimmick. Uh, the Tax Foundation says it will actually do more harm than good. So what's your take on this, Congressman Himes? Well, it's a, it's a controversial thing. Um, and, and, and I understand why elected officials would want to call for economic relief. Um, there's a couple of problems with it, though, which is that gas tax is how we invest in our roads and our bridges. So now all of a sudden we don't have the money we need to invest in our roads and our bridges. As gasoline becomes cheaper, uh, people are inclined to buy gas guzzling cars. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, really, uh, you know, a, a holiday on the gas tax is a subsidy for people who are driving really inefficient vehicles. The person who really makes out best with, with you if you suspend the gas tax is the person who's driving the, you know, 12 mile per gallon um, expedition. So we'll see as this as this, you know, gathers steam in the Congress. A lot of us will give it a hard look, but it's but it's but it's not a no brainer, even though you understand why in the context of high energy prices, you might propose it. Hmm. Uh, when we talk about uh, Ukrainian Americans living in this country, there are about 20,000 Ukrainian Americans in our state. What are you hearing from the local community? Well, it's just anguish. It's absolute anguish. I mean, this is 
this is one of those things that uh, that is is different than a lot of the conflicts that we've seen around the globe because there are so many uh, Ukrainians in Europe and in the United States, as you point out. In fact, right in Stanford, there's a very substantial Ukrainian community. And um, you know what's different about this uh, relative to 20 years ago is now you can be FaceTiming your grandmother in Kiev um, as missiles are landing, uh, you know, around her home. Um, and so, you know, war, war is no longer an abstraction, uh, especially when you've got a huge immigrant community in this country and that immigrant community is able to communicate uh, in, in living color and in real time with their friends and relatives in, uh, in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, oftentimes, um, Americans want to know how they can help. So for those of us in Connecticut who want to know how to help uh, Ukraine, uh, what can they do? What can you tell them? Well, some things are fairly obvious, um, which is, um, you know, there are any number of uh, charitable organizations that are uh, that are assisting Ukraine, wonderful organizations based here in southwestern Connecticut, like Save Save the Children. Uh, There's obviously any 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 number of them nationally that are going to be doing relief work in Ukraine. Um, You know, I would add uh, that because there are so many Ukrainians, you know, these are folks who need neighbors to reach out to them. Um, you know, their family members and their friends are very literally under fire right now. And so this is the moment to go next door to that Ukrainian neighbor and just check in, you know, take a handful of flowers or cook a lasagna. Uh, and then the last thing I would say, you know, Americans, we're, we're famous for sort of not necessarily being as tuned in as Europeans to what's happening abroad. Um, and you know what? Um, energy prices are going to get a little higher in the very near term possible that uh, bread prices may get higher. Ukraine and Russia actually export a lot of wheat. We need to remember that we're watching a a remarkable stand by a vulnerable people against despotism, against brutal, you know, unlawful despotism. And, you know, higher prices are uncomfortable, no question about it. Um, But we need to remember our grandparents who uh, who assisted in the fighting of World War II against another despot uh, and the sacrifices that they made. And we need to really make sure that what we say and do is in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Jim Himes is Connecticut's fourth district congressman, a member of the House Intelligence Committee and chair of the House Subcommittee on National Security, International Development and Monetary Policy. Congressman, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we pivot to a conversation about long-haul COVID. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Researchers say more than one in four patients that get COVID still have symptoms months later. They include fatigue and shortness of breath to brain fog and headaches. Are you experiencing long-haul symptoms? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, a recent study by researchers at Yale New Haven Hospital's Winchester Center for Lung Disease may give hope to long-haulers who've been worried about damage to their heart and lungs. To explain, joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Philip Joseph, pulmonary and critical care physician at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's also associate director for the Pulmonary Vascular Disease Program at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Joseph, welcome to our program. Hi, thank you for having me. 
Now, you and two other researchers, again, at this post-COVID recovery program, uh, figured out why some post-COVID patients were getting back negative cardiopulmonary tests despite having strong symptoms. So what did you find? Yeah, so um, many patients uh, often complain of these symptoms of chronic fatigue and exertional intolerance. Um, They classically uh, describe uh, robust aerobic capacity prior to their diagnosis of COVID. And then after their diagnosis of COVID, most of them had um, minor symptoms, but they have a uh, profound decrement in their aerobic capacity. This is also compounded by this feeling of something we label post-exertional malaise, which is after strenuous activity, uh, both cognitively or uh, uh, with exertion, uh, patients often feel very wiped out with symptoms of brain fog, an inability to even get off their couch for hours. Um, So patients often come to their primary care doctor or their cardiologist or pulmonologist, such as myself, with these vague symptoms. Um, And most of the testing that we do, which includes echocardiograms, pulmonary function tests, CAT scans, x-rays, are all unremarkable and do not explain their symptoms. So we have a test at Yale where we uh, perform a cardiopulmonary exercise test, which is used to measure oxygen uptake and carbon dioxide production, um, along with um, uh, uh, measuring ventilation, um, meaning how well your uh, lungs produce or how long your uh, how well your lungs um, expire that produce oxygen or sorry produce carbon dioxide but we add two catheters uh, one catheter is placed through the neck vein into the heart uh, measuring pressures in the heart throughout exercise and one catheter is placed in the wrist artery so we're able to specifically look for cardiac or pulmonary pathology to potentially explain these long-haul covid symptoms so what we found was that um, despite patients having shortness of breath, which you would think would be a cardiac or pulmonary limitation, that patients actually did not have any significant pathology of their heart and lungs, but that they had impaired oxygen utilization in their exercising muscles, meaning that the heart was pumping out oxygenated blood appropriately to the rest of the body, but the body was not utilizing that oxygen um, in uh, as efficiently as it normally should. You mentioned this test, uh, the ICPET test. You know, when you compare that to an average stress test, you know, is it considered more invasive? And you know, does that dissuade people from from taking this test? Or they're really looking to get some answer to their condition, Doctor Joseph? Yeah, so it is an invasive test. If you actually look at the history of this test, it's been around since the 1940s and kind of got lost in medical history before making a comeback uh, in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, So I would say in experienced hands, it is a low-risk but invasive procedure. And what I do when I counsel patients on um, performing this test is that I can give an answer 95% of the time of what is going on in terms of impairment in their exertional capacity. Um, And many patients are struggling with this this feeling of not knowing what's going on and that they were previously healthy before their diagnosis of COVID and that all their testing has been non-diagnostic. So for patients, uh, I find that most patients, it's important for them 
to know that they're not, you know, for lack of a better term, they're not going crazy and that there is actually something going on to explain their symptoms. And what has been the response when they get this diagnosis, Dr. Joseph, and is there treatment available? So in terms of the response, the grand majority of patients are very grateful to know that there is a diagnosis, that there is something that is explaining their symptoms. A common, a very common uh, patient experience that we have in the exercise lab is that patients um, complete their exercise, uh, get off the bike and go to their stretcher, and they're often sobbing um, or crying because of the relief that we can give them an answer. And that finally, this long journey of not knowing, um, uh, at least a little bit, has been um, positively impacted. Um, in terms of treatment, I think the first step is to diagnose what's going on. And you know, there's a lot of theories about what causes long-haul COVID symptoms. Um, so our theory based on this impairment of oxygen utilization is that um, there might be a direct hit to the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cells and are um, the primary uh, users of oxygen in the exercising muscles versus an aberrant uh, arterial venous malformation in the exercising muscles where oxygen is kind of bypassing the exercising mu muscles where and they're not able to use that. Um, oxygen to create energy. Mm. Again, you're hearing Dr. Philip Joseph here on Where We Live, pulmonary and critical care physician at Yale New Haven Hospital, talking about a recent study uh, that he and co-authors uh, published in the journal CHEST uh, uh, related to long COVID fatigue. Uh, may not be lung and heart problems, but rather fatigue related to the inability of muscles to take up oxygen uh, from the blood. Uh, you know, moving forward, we're going to be talking more about um, individualized treatments to help people with long COVID. Uh, can Their symptoms can vary uh, so much, Dr. Joseph. Can you talk about the role of physical therapy in these individualized treatments? I, I think physical therapy is probably the backbone of um, treatment for long-haul COVID. Um, but the caveat there is that oftentimes these patients exercise to their limits, and then they're um, plagued by these feelings of post-exertional malaise, which I described earlier, meaning that they kind of take a, a, a two steps back um, in terms of brain fog and an inability to exercise further the next day or the next two days. So I think one utility of the invasive cardiopulmonary exercise test is to quantify their aerobic capacity and potentially um, come up with an exercise prescription um, in order to really uh, guide um, physical therapy and physical rehabil rehabilitation, which, again, I think is the backbone of therapy for these patients. You described this test again, the IC-PET, or the Invasive Cardiopulmonary Exercise Test, for listeners who want to know more about you know, how uh, they can be uh, tested this way. You know, where can they go? Is it limited, uh, depending on where they are in the state? Um, yes. So there are only around seven centers around the country that do this uh, Invasive Cardiopulmonary Exercise Test. Uh, two of them are in Boston, where I trained, and then uh, my colleague and I came to Yale in 2018, 2019, where we started the program. Um, so the best way to get tested would be to contact the post-COVID-19 recovery program at uh, Yale New Haven Health, um, where um, 
a patient can be scheduled with a pulmonary provider for an evaluation of their exertional intolerance or shortness of breath, and then go through a whole slew of testing or a careful review of their uh, diagnostic testing that they've already uh, had done, and then uh, have a referral for an invasive test if appropriate. Mm. You know, a lot has changed over the last uh, two years, Dr. Joseph. When we talk about post-COVID symptoms, you know, who is more likely to, to suffer from these symptoms, Dr. Joseph? So um, contrary to what you would think, um, we find that patients who've had very mild symptoms, meaning that it's not the patients who were hospitalized, who I see when I'm uh, practicing critical care medicine in the ICU or intensive care unit, those patients don't really uh, come to us with these symptoms. It's really the patients who stayed at home um, and had mild to little symptoms. Um, One of the things that I think remains to be studied is that we've primarily studied patients who were um, diagnosed during the first surge. So this was before vaccination. And I'd say anecdotally, I'm not seeing patients who have been vaccinated um, come with these uh, vague or um, unexplained symptoms of shortness of breath. That remains to be seen if patients who uh, were vaccinated and had such as the uh, the Omicron variant, if they're going to later go on to develop symptoms. But I, I would say that perhaps vaccinations can also help with uh, preventing or decreasing the symptoms of long-haul COVID as well. Again, Dr. Philip Joseph is pulmonary and critical care physician at Yale New Haven Hospital. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we're going to hear from a Connecticut resident about her experience after contracting COVID, and we're going to learn more about a post-COVID rehabilitation program rather at Middlesex Health right after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Some people continue to have symptoms months after getting COVID, and they may need a team of specialists to treat them. We'll be hearing about the post-COVID rehabilitation program at Middlesex Health in just a few minutes. But we wanted to hear from a Connecticut resident about her experience seeking care months after getting COVID. Joining us now on the phone is Kathy Flaherty, who lives in Newington, but she's also executive director of the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Now, you've been very open about your personal experience with COVID. You uh, documented your early case of COVID from back in March of 2020. And so we wanted to know, you know, how you're doing today and what have you been dealing with in recent months uh, with these post-COVID symptoms? Uh, Thank you so much for asking. And that's a great question. Um, I was one of the uh, original kind of group of long haulers. I first got sick in March um, and of 2020, uh, which was, I think, 102 weeks ago. Um, Thought I'd be better in two weeks. Uh, That didn't quite happen. Uh, I certainly am better than I was in March and April of 2020, but still have the occasional shortness of breath, will cough a lot if I'm talking a lot, um, and really have to monitor my level of activity um, because I will get hit with that post-exertional malaise, whether it's physical or um, 
trying to think too hard. Uh, I have to rest a lot more than I ever used to have to do. We heard from Dr. Joseph at Yale about oh. this the struggle uh, to figure out you know what's um, going on with uh, uh, patients uh, who are dealing with post COVID symptoms. And so, when you were seeking out diagnosis or treatments, you know where did you find success, or is a holistic approach what's really needed here? Um, from my personal experience, I do think a holistic approach is what's needed, and you know I think. The experience I've had with a post-COVID clinic, which actually happened to be at Yale, um, it was because I got sick so early, that was really when people were still attempting to learn a lot. So there were a lot of tests um, with a lot of normal results um, until uh, did a lot more blood work and found a lot of inflammatory processes still going on. My guess is that if I were to in, to do this invasive test, they would find the results that they're finding for these other patients. Um, I think I became accustomed rather early to realizing that I was not necessarily going to find answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, especially for me, because I, I got sick at a time where I couldn't get a test. So... Uh, I very much appreciate the fact that I had the opportunity to get into a post-COVID clinic without that PCR test because for a lot of us, they just weren't available uh, when we first got sick. And I think it just shows not only the way we set up our health systems to provide access to care, um, but also just thinking of the long-term disabling results of this pandemic um, where we're creating a lot of people having health conditions that they didn't have before and how do we address and meet their needs. Mm. You recently wrote about your experience in being on partial long-term disability for post-COVID symptoms in the Connecticut Mirror. What did you want to share with our listeners, Kathy? I think what people need to understand is the devastating financial impact that long COVID is having on so many people. Um, I'm fortunate to work at a job where I had a significant amount of paid sick time, which I was fortunate enough to not have to use uh, before I got sick with COVID, um, and also had a job with a benefits plan that had long-term disability insurance. That supported my family um, for a year. You know, I had partial long-term disability and I worked half-time. A lot of people don't have that. People need accommodations at work. People need to have access to income support if they're not able to work. I think we're learning now a lot more people are finding out some of the problems that our benefits have and how the social safety net has a lot more holes in it than a lot of people realized. Um, And we have, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people falling through those holes in that safety net um, caused by the pandemic. Kathy Flaherty, again, is a Newington resident, also executive director of the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate your having me. Uh, with us now on Zoom is Dr. Alina Filizov, who's the chief of infectious disease, also the hospital epidemiologist at Middlesex Health. Uh, Dr. Filizov, welcome to our show. 
Good to be with you, Lucy. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted you to, to respond to what uh, Kathy shared. And we when we heard from Dr. Joseph, you know, post-COVID, there's a long list of symptoms. And it really ranges uh, from the neurological to the psychological. And so can you talk about that and what people are experiencing day to day with long haul symptoms? Uh, yes, um, the story that your listener has presented to us is a very typical story of patients with long COVID. The symptoms are very diverse. It takes time to diagnose. Uh, and hence, the definition of long COVID includes uh, a timing of the symptoms that are at least should be two months after the uh, COVID diagnosis. With it should, they should, those symptoms should develop within four weeks of the diagnosis and last until two months. Um, at least two months. And you could see that during two months uh, or more of those symptoms, it takes a, a team of medical professionals to pinpoint even a approximate diagnosis because most of these symptoms cross uh, paths with many other diagnoses that patients may be presenting to medical facilities. And of course, those who recover from COVID have to battle other issues, their exacerbation of their chronic medical conditions if they have, uh, or recovery from their long hospitalizations, or even not a long hospitalization. Any hospitalization can uh, allow patients to develop new symptoms that they didn't have before. Um, so it, it is very frustrating, as you could see, illness, not just for the doctors who uh, are having difficulty diagnosing this with, with easy tests, because obviously there is no easy test, there is no easy questionnaire that can pinpoint the diagnosis straight away. But of course, the patients are suffering and have to seek medical attention from multiple sources to finally get the answer they, they seek. Uh, you were asking earlier about um, the prevalence of the symptoms. Uh, and I have to say that uh, some estimate that up to 80% of patients who recover from COVID, ver um, uh, mild or severe, may be experienced a variation of, of long COVID. Um, not all of those patients, of course, will persist uh, for a prolonged period of time, but that's a, a huge amount um, of uh, the uh, patient um, suffering and number of patients that are out there that we need to have uh, control over. When you talk about this team, especially at Middlesex Health, uh, you know, how you factor in the, the psychological component, because it can be so frustrating for people who want to determine, you know, what's wrong with them to get a clear diagnosis and to figure out treatment options, Dr. Filizov. Um, it is very important. Um, physical component, of course, often drives the psychological component. Um, and, but patients have to be able to cope with their illness in the and and participate in the care. Um, so coping with uncertainty of this illness is very important. Uh, navigating their changes uh, with relationships in their family because of their fatigue, because of their brain fog is very important. Um, how to counter the brain fog is something that is very important. Uh, uh, important for us to address and any treatment options that we offer um, has to take this into account. And of course, patients feel um, sensation of inadequacy because uh, many of them had full lives and fully physically capable. Um, and so when, when they come to a point where they require help from others or they have a new diagnosis, it's always a, a coping uh, timing. And so uh, with the uh, our teams of psychologists and uh, uh, 
physical therapist and occupational therapist, we hope that to bring those patients to recovery faster. Again, you're hearing Dr. Alina Filizov, who's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Middlesex Health. Uh, Middlesex Health is actually an underwriter of Connecticut Public. I wanted to bring in another member of, of the team with this post-COVID rehabilitation program at Middlesex, Brian Tabor, who's Director of Physical Rehabilitation for Middlesex Health. Uh, Brian, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So when we talk about COVID fatigue and as a physical therapist, the role of this particular care and in helping uh, patients uh, get better. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as you've heard from our other people that have spoke today, uh, because these symptoms of long COVID are so diverse and so vague, I think that the challenge really for us from a rehab standpoint is coming up with an individualized treatment plan that focuses on the patient's goals as well as their limitations, uh, you know, and, and coming up with that, that uh, initial assessment so we can really learn how do they respond to things like exercise and activity. You know, uh, Dr. Joseph mentioned that some patients with long COVID uh, don't respond well to exercise and, you know, we're going to treat those patients very differently than we're going to treat those that, uh, that see an improvement in their, their limitations with exercise. Uh, David shared a comment on Facebook. Uh, he's also a, a physical therapist. He sees patients every day in the rehab facility, but wants to know more of you know of, of this type of care in the long-term care uh, setting. Uh, can you talk about that at all, Brian? Uh, you know, as far as long-term care setting, you know, that's a little bit outside of um, my realm. But the, what I know about it is, you know, it's going to kind of be the same as looking at someone from a home setting. It's really taking into consideration how those people's individual reaction to activity or, you know, uh, the, the difficult cognitive tasks um, and adjusting what they do on a day-to-day -day basis so that they don't end up with that, that post-activity malaise that knocks them out for a day or two after. Uh, Melissa on Facebook also pointed to the similarities among post-viral conditions like post-Lyme. Uh, Dr. Filizov, can you speak to this? Um, uh, yes, that's the complexity of making the diagnosis. We still do not understand the uh, cause of what is called post-Lyme disease as well. Most of those patients also complain of brain fog, fatigue, and we don't really have physiologic explanation for those symptoms. Uh, we are only starting to understand uh, the, the symptoms of COVID, um, and we are just in the beginning of it. But um, the difficulty of diagnosis post-Lyme versus post-COVID, the, the timing can, can overlap, the symptoms will absolutely overlap, and the diagnosis is not difficult, is not easy, because those patients who live in Connecticut, many of those patients have had Lyme disease, so their test is going to be positive. But uh, to, to relate those symptoms to the current situation may be very difficult. Hmm. We just heard uh, from Brian Tabor, Director of Physical Rehabilitation for Middlesex Hospital. I'm having trouble with that word today, uh, Brian. Uh, so tell us more about, you know, when you think about physical therapy as part of the tailored treatment plan for post-COVID, you know, what does this look like? So, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, the first thing, and I think the most important thing for the patient's rehab is going to be that initial evaluation that they come in for when they, they see our clinicians. And that's going to look at everything from their, their strength and their balance, their 
uh, cardiopulmonary abilities, um, as well as just a lot of conversation with the patient of what they were doing before COVID, uh, what they want to get back to, the things where they're really finding challenging in their their day-to-day lives. And you know, I think what makes us unique at Middlesex is we can offer uh, a really a multidisciplinary approach. We have occupational therapists that will focus a lot on um, what's referred to as activities of daily living. So your ability to uh, do the do the the tasks that make up day-to-day life, whether it's things around your home, whether it's uh, going to work, uh, grocery shopping, all, all of those items. And, you know, and then our physical therapists will work a lot on balance and mobility. Um, and then we also have uh, speech and language pathologists who are really, they're going to be the experts on the cognitive limitations and that brain fog and how patients can, can work through that and make improvements in uh, their overall cognition. Dr. Philzoff, did you want to add to that with the role of physical therapy in these treatment plans? Um, no, I, I do know that, and I appreciate the uh, physical therapists of Middlesex Health that are always helping us in uh, helping our patients feel better. Um, and we work together as a team between infectious disease docs, pulmonary doctors, uh, the uh, physical therapist, occupational therapist, our behavioral health team. We want to make sure that we get patient back on, on his, her feet as quick as possible with as little limitation to the rest of their life. And we work towards that. And again, another plug for vaccines. Those who are not vaccinated uh, should go ahead and get vaccinated. Those patients who were vaccinated and, re- and had COVID are less likely, much, much less likely to end up with prolonged symptoms. So that's another uh, good reason uh, not to um, develop immunity to COVID the hard way. We heard Dr. Joseph earlier describe physical therapy as the backbone of treatment in lieu of actual targeted treatment. Do you agree with that, Dr. Filizov? Uh Yes, uh, because unfortunately we don't have any other specific treatments. Uh, we only have treatments to control symptoms, to improve symptoms, and those treatments are not very successful. Uh, patients' improvement in their mental abilities, their physical abilities, their mood, will help them move forward faster. So I I absolutely agree. If you or a loved one is dealing with long-haul COVID symptoms, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. You know, earlier we talked about the psychological toll this takes on uh, people, again, not only trying to figure out uh, their diagnosis, but the impact on their personal lives, on even their ability uh, to go back to work. And so when we think about the team at Middlesex Health, uh, Dr. Philosoph, I'll start with you. Can you talk more about that holistic approach and and how to address that? So we're trying to take care of patients' physical needs, psychological needs. Um, There are social workers that can help navigate uh, financial, social issues. Um, Obviously, as a provider, um, as part of the big group of providers, we um, allow patients to be part-time work. Uh, or be out of work for some period of time when they can recover, when they can participate in their work. Um, We, as I mentioned, uh, work with multiple teams uh, to uh, allow for, first of all, good workup before the diagnosis of long COVID is rendered because those symptoms can involve all organ systems 
Uh, and when that happens, we want to make sure we do not miss a real damage to a body part, which may not be related to COVID whatsoever. So in the process that requires a cardiological evaluation, I mentioned pulmonary evaluation, sometimes GI, gastroenterology evaluation, uh, and many others, uh, just to make sure that at the end, if everything else seems to be in order, or patient has a chronic condition that is under control, that our remaining diagnosis is indeed long COVID, and then we focus on um, their physical, emotional well-being, and, and really hope that infl inflammation um, that the body is trying to fight through uh, will subside, uh, and all other symptoms uh, will subside as well. Mm. Uh, Kathy Flaherty is still with us. Again, she's a Newington resident, and she was sharing with us earlier about her experiences post-COVID. Kathy, uh, what, what are you, what's your response to hearing about this program and what these providers have shared? Well, I think what's really important, and a lot of us who have been dealing with uh, long COVID, was the recognition that it does seem to resemble other post-viral conditions. Um, and that it's really important for the medical professional professions and others to like have that recognition that this isn't an entirely new process. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we're, we're getting better at that. And hopefully the solutions, the medical solutions that we find for people um, in terms of dealing with the health impact of COVID will also help people who are, who've been living for years with other kind of post-viral conditions. And I think, again, you know, recognizing that when you have social workers who can help people navigate financial landscapes, navigate benefit systems, those are the kind of things that will help people because it's mm -hmm. the way the systems are set up, especially if you are really dealing with cognitive impairments from uh, the post-COVID syndrome, having to keep track of all the various uh, bureaucracies that you're dealing with. Um, assistance, I think, in that way will really help. And I think just for us to count, I think that the one thing that struck me was when the doctor talked about how many of the people who they're seeing are people who experienced mild symptoms. So that's always really distressing when you hear some people talk about, it's okay, it's mild because we don't know what the long-term consequences will be. Uh, Sharon's also calling in from Newington. Sharon, we have a couple of minutes. What did you want to share? Yes, hi. I had a family member with post-COVID syndrome. I just wanted to, um, to contribute this info that she had serious uh, short-term memory problems, and we finally found speech therapy. And speech therapy was incredibly helpful. It helped her overcome her short-term memory issues and get back to work. So I just thought I'd contribute that. Well, thank you, Sharon, for sharing that. And we're glad to hear uh, that um, your family member uh, is doing better. Uh, we just have, uh, again, a couple minutes left. Brian Tabor, I wanted to go back to you again as Director of Physical Rehabilitation for Middlesex Health. You know, oftentimes uh, with PT, you're able to get it for a certain amount of time uh, based on your insurance. And so when we're thinking about post-COVID, you know, how long uh, will someone need this kind of therapy with you and your team uh, traditionally? You know, that's a great question. I think it's something that uh, is certainly a concern of many. And, you know, there's not really a, an easy way to give a, a 
definitive answer that every patient is going to be different. Um, and, and that's something that we'll take into consideration with the patient, what their insurance plan is, what, uh, you know, what their goals are, what they feel is reasonable for them, both from a time commitment standpoint and financially. Um, as, as we've heard from a couple of the people that have spoke, uh, the financial aspects can be just as, as limiting as some of the physical aspects when you're concerned about that. Um, but our team will work with the patient to, to come up with what really works within their means. Um, and some people, it means that they'll come multiple times a week for many weeks. And for others, it may be one or two visits um, here and there where they then check in with the therapist. Um, really, it's up to that conversation that we'll have with the patient to make sure that it, it works for them, because ultimately that's the, the best way we find that it's going to be most successful. Brian Tabor at Middlesex Health, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Also here with us, Dr. Lena Filizov, who's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Middlesex Health. Thank you, Dr. Filizov. Thank you, Lucy. And Kathy Flaherty, thank you for joining us today as well. Thank you so much, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the board today was Katie Tolarski, and Tess Terrible was on the phones. We'll be back tomorrow.